Hi everyone, and welcome to another Bible study here at One Love Live at Love Walk. And I'm your host, Leela Winston, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to today's Bible study. Um, as you know, guys, we come together to read in the Word of God and study it so that we can practically apply it to our lives and also so that we can discover the purpose of our lives. And of course, with that purpose to enact it in the earth according to the way that God wants us to. And so um, I want us to turn now, we're going to, um, I think, revisit a very interesting uh, concept, but I want us to look at it in a different way. Lately, we have been going over the gifts of the Spirit. And I think we really should look into the fruits of the Spirit as well, because I think there's sometimes a confusion between fruit and gifts. And while all of these things can be lovely and they're spiritual to some degree, there really is a difference between them. And so uh, I want us to kind of look at that, but we're going to, this may be an entree to it. This may be an introduction, uh, introductory to it or introduction to it. And we may look at this uh, in the future when we are finished with the talent series. Um, but I want us to look at this. I think it will bless you in terms of your walk today as a believer. And our anchor text is going to be Mark chapter four, verse one and three. It's Mark. Mark chapter four, verse one and three. Go ahead and grab your Bible. It's not long, but I think it packs a punch, okay? And you may not think so, but let's just go, just go with me as they say. So Mark chapter four, verse one and three says, and he began again to teach by the seaside and there was gathered unto him a great multitude so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on land and he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. That's Matthew chapter four, verse one and three. And so I want us to focus on the very last scripture that says, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. Now, if you know, you've looked at some of the Bible studies that we've done, if you've been along with us for some of the um, series when we talked about the sower, um, like what have you sowed? There's, I'll try and link them in the description, guys. Um, also, uh, the beautiful uh, gift, which talks about evangelism and God's imperative for all of us. But I want to point something out about the sower. We're going to look at the sower this time instead of the seeds and instead of the ground. So I want to point out three things about this scripture right off the top that you can use and that you can see clearly. The first thing is that there was a sower and he went out to sow. So it's telling us right now his intention, what he intended to do and what he did. And then two, it says if we can ascertain that he was looking for increase. People don't just throw seeds on the ground for fun. <laughs> Maybe some people do, I don't know. He's not throwing out confetti. He's throwing out seeds and he has an intention for them to grow. And so if he is throwing out seeds, the chances are he's looking for the fruit. If I throw out apple seeds, if I throw out pear seeds, orange seeds, whatever, I'm not just sowing that so that I can have some cool trees or some nice plants. I am sowing that so that I can get the fruit from it. And any farmer will tell you that he doesn't go out and sow seeds so that he can say, oh, wow, I have a lot of beautiful plants. He wants them to produce fruit. And so I want you to um, get into the head of the sower for a moment or put yourself in the place of the sower. OK, and I want you to think about his efforts. OK, imagine the disappointment 
at his seed sprouting but withering away. Because remember, if we can remember with the parable that Jesus told, there were some seeds that sprouted and they just withered away. And remember that there were also those that sprouted but never produced fruit. So we're seeing different kinds of, um, I guess you could say, results of the seeds that he threw out, right? And so we're, if we think about his efforts, we can actually ascertain a few things. Because if you can remember in this parable, there were four kinds of ground, okay? There was the wayside there was the stony ground and then of course there was the thorny ground and finally there was good ground and so if we look at this we can suppose that let's say he had a hundred percent seed right and we can say that he's you know he sprinkled out or he sowed all 100 percent of his seed so that tells us that each portion of ground we could say roughly got about 25 percent of the seed that he sowed which would mean that 75% of the seed that he sowed, no fruit came of it. It just, it was just gone for good. Like maybe it sprouted, but it didn't produce fruit. Or maybe it sprouted and it withered. Or maybe it fell on the wayside and birds came and eat it. So it means he had to get all the produce from his work, from his sowing, from 25% of the seed he had. So I think it's important for us to understand what that is, of how narrow the way is when it comes to you know, walking after the Lord and that he understands that. And that also, if you have the gift of evangelism or you're a believer and you're out fulfilling the great commission, you want to understand that of all of the seed that you will throw out, about 25% will probably actually sprout and or probably that you will see will actually sprout. So you should not feel bad. You should know that the way is narrow. It says so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says, Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. So that means only 25% of his seed was enough because of its reproductive capacity. And that's really what you have to understand. You know, we understand the multiplicity of God and how, you know, he sort of packs in so much generations into one man, you know, how he is, you know, us and not just God, how he creates mankind as male and female, man and woman. We begin to understand that God can create productivity and multiply from just a little bit. So it really doesn't matter whether you have a lot or a little, you can still produce. I want you to remember Eve lost two sons. She lost Cain and Abel. You know, Abel, obviously he was murdered, but Cain, you know, the guy disappeared off into nowhere, you know, and his genealogy was completely forgotten. And that's not to say that he did not keep living, okay? But he was just completely forgotten. But remember, she had a third child, okay? Because of the reproductive capacity, there can be refreshing, there can be replenishing. And when Seth was born, he would produce the man that would be 
that would cause men to begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And I think that's important to understand in your own life, in the life that you're living and how you're deciding to you know, interact is to understand that the productive capacity that you have as a believer, um, as an individual, as one of God's creations created in the image of God, you have this creative capacity to multiply. And this is important for you to catch on to so that you're never looking at someone else you're rather looking at the things that you need to multiply in your own life. So God wants you to sow, right? Yes, even in evangelism, but he also wants you to sow also in your gifts, in good works, and also in love. And only 25% may fall on good ground, people, and that doesn't sound like good odds, I know. It really doesn't. But remember, it's enough to feed your house. That's the thing. And we learn that in so many parables, even when we think about the widow and the cake of meal, you know, when the barrel that never ran out. And when we think about the widow that had the two sons and she used the oil to pay off her debt, God can use these small things to create much. So adequacy comes from God. That's the thing. That it's so beautiful to understand that. That's why God has such an audacity. There's actually a Bible study here called the audacity of God. And I truly believe believers need to be more audacious because God is. He dares to call things out of stuff that just doesn't exist. He says, let there be light. What is light? Let there be water or oceans. No one had ever had these things as far as we're concerned, but it was made according to the counsel of his will. So I think you have to understand that God can do the same thing in your life. He can do the same thing with you. He can have you do the same thing. So we have to remember as believers that our adequacy comes from God, not men, nor anything that they do. He decides what grows. He knows the good ground. He is the one that gave the increase. And Paul says this directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, so then neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. We should be talking to God about increase, not ourselves. Yes, you may be the best sower in the world. You may know how to sow seeds. You may be the best person that knows how to break up ground and make it absolutely beautiful. You may be the best of whatever it is in the world, but you have to remember at the end of the day, it is God that gives the increase. And that's why our relationship with him is so important, okay? You see, the sower could have carefully planted a single seed at a time. Okay, that sounds bizarre to me, but I'm still saying, you know, he could have done that, but he didn't. He was generous with his word, with his seed, regardless of the ground that it fell on. And that's what we have to remember with God. He's generous with his word. He gives it out that all men may know. That is why the evangelist is so pivotal because you're going to hasten the time of Christ because until everyone gets that gospel, Jesus Christ isn't coming back. He is fair. And so the sower knows one thing when he goes out and we can be assured of that, that some of his seeds are going to grow. Sower has faith that even though some falls by the wayside and some on thorny ground and maybe some don't produce fruit at all, He knows that some will, and some will produce fruit, right? And that's all that matters is that we sow because some will grow, some will blossom and multiply. So I wanna ask you some questions because you guys know I also like to sort of provoke learning in you and make you think a little bit. Where do you get seeds from? And that's the question. It's really, this is not a trick question. Where do you get seeds from? Where do seeds come from? 
I'm giving you a second. Right. Right. Seeds come from fruit. You don't get seeds. Seeds just don't fall off trees. Seeds just don't sprout up out of the ground. They come from fruit, right? So you have to produce fruit. And so what is fruit in the kingdom of heaven? This is really key to understand. So it means that seeds, you're not going to get more seed. You're not going to get more word, kind of like this internally produced word, unless there's fruit, right? So what is fruit for the believer? Okay, that's so key. The fruit of the spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 is this. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. That's Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and 23. My friend, this is the fruit of the Spirit and this is where your seeds come from. This is so important to understand because Yes, you know, I might have a gift of being able to, I don't know, whatever, but what matters is that fruit that I produce, right? Not only should we be fruitful, but we should choose our friends and associates, our confidants, our spouses, whoever, by fruit. And so many times, you know, we stay with fruitless things and fruitless people instead of the fruitful. We complain that there is no fruit from a certain tree when the truth is that we should just move on. I mean, just take Jesus' example, okay? Jesus never stood around a fruitless fig tree waiting for it to blossom, waiting for it to produce figs. In the Bible, there's actually a concept, and you can read this throughout the Bible. I mean, no one misses in this particular, you know, um, parable, and you can find this from the Old Testament to the New, but there is this idea that if a tree doesn't produce fruit in your life, you're supposed to cut it down and throw it in the fire. Like, can we make a chair of the tree or something? We don't, do we have to burn it? But then at the same time, I think back in those days, the idea that if a tree was not producing fruit meant that it was sick and you didn't want to have that timber or that wood or whatever it was around. It was not good for keeping around. And I'm just thinking of this as like someone who has some uh, affiliations with the agrarian life. And so cutting down and burning unfruitful trees was a concept or a theme throughout the Bible. And so I want to ask you, what is not giving you fruit in your own life? I want to encourage you to cut it down so that there is a chance, so that there is no chance rather, that it will take up any room where something fruitful can grow. And I think that's part of the point too, is that if you have something growing and it doesn't produce fruit, it's kind of taking up space, right? I mean, just think about the parable in Luke chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. I don't know if you remember this, but there's this rather lengthy parable of a master who actually goes to his garden or his farm or whatever, and he has like a servant. He's like, hey, why hasn't that tree sprouted any fruit? And burn it up, cut it down and burn it up and throw it away. And the, the, um, the servant says, oh, no, 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 wait. Let's look at that. Luke chapter 13, 8 and 9, it says, Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why covereth it the ground? And he answered and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. 
and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. That's Luke chapter 13, verse 7 and 9. And I think that's a great example of Jesus Christ. Who, who's having this conversation? Is it God and man? No, it's this conversation between God and Jesus Christ. Think about this now. God is always merciful, so he gives time for things to give fruit. Incidentally, Jesus Christ's ministry was for three years. Remember the Lord that came to his vine dresser said, I've been coming here for three years. I've been trying to get you to convert for three years and it still hasn't changed. Cut it down. Well, he says, wait, give me a year. Let me do some things and then we'll see. So God is merciful. You see, because fruitless trees, unfortunately, in God's economy are just plain useless. And you can find this all over the Bible. He said he'd give it one more year. And I think that's really beautiful too, because it kind of shows us the brevity of the time we have to make a decision for Christ. I think that's really interesting. You see, many people think that doing uh, work for God or a ministry or feeding the poor is fruit. And I think those are wonderful things. Don't get me wrong. I've done it. You know, I look forward to doing it. I think people who do it are absolutely awesome and wonderful, but that's still not fruit. That's work. And remember, we show faith by work, as it says in James. So your work in that area shows your faith, but we show fruit by what it says in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, through love and goodness and self-control, these are our fruit. Let's look at James chapter 2, 18 and 20. It says, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have worked. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believes that there is one God, thou dost well. The devil also believes and trembles. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So we see that there is this need to understand that our faith, our works show our faith, right? But our, our fruit, no, that doesn't show, our works don't show our fruit. So there's this really interesting factor that sometimes we do. We kind of hold on to relationships um, and, and sometimes even places, <laughs> um, sometimes even you know, positions, careers, whatever, that really aren't bearing the fruit that we need in our lives. And so if it's not bringing fruit, you have to consider yourself kind of like that man who came to his vine dresser and said, you know, it's been three years and I'm not really seeing any growth here. See, there's this Bible study that we did. Um, it's called Love and Marriage. You'd better marry for love. Well, I hope you'll check it out. And I really like that Bible study because it goes against popular sentiment and it goes against popular culture. And the reason I like it is because it underscores what God says about love and his original intent for marriage. It doesn't try to validate by you know personal or even popular experience or notion. God wants love, right? Because it's a fruit and you don't get fruit without seeds and you don't get seeds without fruit, right? And you you, you have to um, have this love of God to really be able to sustain things long-term. And this is so important because love is a fruit of the spirit. And if that person isn't producing those things, then what is the point? Why do you have them then? And yes, you might have to marry so you don't burn. We all know about that. But 
thing is, is that you have to be sure that both you and that person are evergreen in producing love, in producing the fruit of the spirit. And I want to show you something here in Matthew chapter seven, because a lot of times we think it's a little bit foggy or we're not really sure, but even Jesus Christ gives us the answer. He always gives us the answer. Let's look at what it says in Matthew chapter seven, 15 to 20. It says, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistle? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 and 20. Write it down, tack it on your wall, then write down what the fruits of the Spirit are and tack that on your wall and use that. Put it in your planner or your notes in your mobile phone if you're dating or if you're trying to choose a partner or you're evaluating a friend. It's important because that is how you're going to determine things, by the fruit. And I'm going to say something that's kind of unpopular. And I'm going to point this out from scripture, and I will even admit myself that I don't even like this point, (laughs) but we are going to speak on it, and we did speak on it in the Bible study that's called Ladies' Night. And if you're a woman, even if you're a man, but if you're a woman and you really need to um, listen to this Bible study because it gives you some context and insight into some of your own motivations that are being controlled by the curse rather than what you think is natural. So... A lot of times people, and I will say this particularly women, sometimes hang around with people who don't have good fruit or any fruit at all because they are under the curse. Now, women tend to do this with men because they put the man's desire above their own. In modern times, you know, we like to say this is being male identified or it just means that she looks out for his best interest instead of her own. That We can find this in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. It says specifically unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. That's Genesis chapter 3.16. And incidentally, folks, this is not a blessing. (laughs) This is a curse. And so for a lot of women, she does what makes sense for her husband, for the guy that she's with or whatever, instead of what makes sense for her. And this is sacrificial in a bad way right? This is not a blessing. You see, God isn't against logic or even common sense, right? There are four whole books in the Bible that are dedicated to having good old-fashioned common sense, right? And so, in fact, the Bible tells us that God made the world with wisdom in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 19. So, I think you need to understand that there is this idea That, you know, for some, you know, when we're thinking about fruits of the spirit and we're thinking about love, we don't often take that into consideration because we're so busy 
you know, either being compelled by that curse or, you know, some other, com- something else is compelling us. So some women sometimes marry for marriage. <laughs> like they literally are married for the point of being married uh, for marriage sake or for the man instead of for love too. Men marry women too. Don't, I'm not trying to put this on women. And I just want to say that because I'm not one of those people who are putting it on men or women. I understand how it's all laid out. Please go read the Bible and it will tell you everything how it's going on. But men often marry women they don't love because they're playing that successful, accomplished man game, which men are quite into sort of like, you know, sort of competing with each other, gamification. Remember that whole idea of working the earth and trying to get what they need from it. So a lot of men, they're trying to get successful. They're trying to establish themselves. And so sometimes it requires a wife and, and kids or a home or something like, you know, there's certain people, they say, well, if you're going to be in this profession, or you're going to be in politics, you're going to do this, then you're going to need a husband or you're going to need a wife. And so a lot of men do that. And you'd be surprised at the people who married for advancement or because it was good for a position. And I'm not sure. And just being a woman who understands some of the you know, uh, complications that go with a curse. I am not sure if there's not one of us, particularly women who haven't been tempted to do this to marry for money or security or peer pressure, for position, for citizenship, or even for a career. But these are not God reasons, right? Like we are supposed to be different from culture. These are not God reasons to marry. So where's the fruit? And I wanna make a disclaimer here. I am not saying that if you marry for these things, your marriage is now illegitimate, right? The Bible says that marriage is honorable in all one flesh couples, as it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. So this isn't an out (laughs) for people who might be in miserable marriages. It's just a warning for those who haven't gotten into it, who are evaluating. It is an encouragement for those who are in them to try to improve the ones that they have. So it's important to understand that what isn't producing fruit is likely dead. And that's the point I'm kind of trying to get at with this idea of fruit and production, right? That what isn't producing fruit is probably dead. And we think fruit means money, business, friends, career, talent, babies, but God wants the fruit of the spirit. And that is what I want you to orient to. We've been looking at the gifts of the spirit and we're gonna continue until we finish. But I want you to understand that there is the fruit of the spirit, which makes life beautiful. These things you need, you absolutely need. And I hope you will take a chance to sort of study and meditate on Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. See, because if a person isn't producing the fruit of the spirit, then he or she is probably dead. (laughs) And I know that sounds kind of um, extreme, but I want you to understand this picture, okay? I want you to remove the concept of being unequally yoked because quite frankly, most of us don't even really understand agrarian life, right? Like most people aren't, I won't say most people, a lot of people who are listening to this digital podcast probably isn't sowing, aren't sowing fields of wheat and they're probably not pushing oxen, right? So probably a better way to see this is not being unequally yoked, but maybe being unequally handcuffed. I think we all understand what handcuffing means, right? Whether you have a farm or not. 
And yes, when you link up with someone who is not a believer or producing fruit, which includes love, you handcuff yourself to a corpse. That's the point. You're taking the chance that maybe your corpse may be resurrected. It may, but maybe they won't. And so they will be sitting next to you completely dead in sin, unable to engage you on the level you need to grow with you, to live in the spirit, and to nurture each other fitly together like the body of Christ should. It will be very difficult to advance in life together. It will be so easy to fall out of love. It's really a tough call. It's so tough, in fact, that Paul had to warn the early church not to abandon their unbelieving spouse. And you can read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He literally had to be like, don't leave. Not unless they have, you know, committed adultery. You do not go, right? Paul was trying to say, hey, your marriage is real and God recognizes it. You just can't abandon it, right? And for some people, unfortunately, marriage is excruciatingly miserable because they are handcuffed to a corpse. And thankfully, regardless of whether their spouse converts or not, God can teach them through that. He can bless them. He can can make changes in their life so that it is not miserable. It is only through God's love and cultivating that fruit of the Spirit, even in yourself. But understand, it's kind of like living with the enemy. Okay, Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace. He came to send a sword. So you're living with someone that's diametrically opposed to you and all that you believe in. Living with a corpse is hard, but living handcuffed to one is unimaginable. And this is why well-meaning believers who marry unbelievers often have difficulty or they may even divorce or put their spouse away. They do it because it's it's almost unbearable. A ter- terrible marriage wears on both parties, and God doesn't want that. He wants a beautiful image of what the bride of Christ looks like with her groom. And you can avoid all of that. You see, our sower, he sows the word for everyone. And he tells us that there's fruit that we need to look forward to. And if we can't see that fruit, then we are empowered to make decisions, not against people, but when we don't see the fruit, make decisions that make sense for both of us. You see, our sower sows the word for everyone, regardless of whether it sprouts or produces fruit or not. God, in his loving mercifulness, has told us the answer already. I think that's beautiful. He always gives you the answer, right? He says you'll know them by their fruit in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and 16. He's literally giving you the answer, right? If we do not take this as advice, we set ourselves up for misery. And I only have to tell you what the word of God says. I don't really have to live in an unbearable marriage. I don't have to go to the office every day and argue with that terrible business partner about the direction of the company. You would have to do that. And I don't have to find myself in dismay at being betrayed once again by that treacherous friend. See, what I say, what I'm reading, what you get from the word of God I don't influence that. I'm that's not my idea. I have lots of wonderful ideas I could tell you about the way I think it should work. But we can't go beyond that. 
all a believer should do, whether you are a teacher, a, an evangelist, a preacher, whatever it is you do, all you do is point out what's written in the Bible. You don't add to it. You don't say, well, because I could add some more things to it, guys. I have my own ideas, but I'm not telling you them. Not because I wouldn't share it with you over a cup of coffee. You invite me to out. I will chat with you. But God forces no one to follow his sage. He just gives you the answer. And even though he's 100% accurate, he still won't force you. So what would I look like, you know, getting angry at someone who rejected the gospel or didn't believe the word? No. You see, look for the fruit. When we focus on the sower in this parable instead of the seed or even the ground, we see that he's good. He's given an opportunity to the wayside. He gave an opportunity to stony ground, even thorny ground, and good ground. Everyone gets a chance. In fact, they get many chances. Have you ever sowed seeds? I just want to ask you if you've ever sown seeds. I have. Okay, and how it works is you grab a handful of the seed and you kind of toss it out. It's almost like sprinkling salt. You kind of let your wrist be a little loose and the seeds sort of rush through your fingers and across your palms and they kind of sail softly out onto the breeze and, and just sort of settle on the soil. It's really kind of satisfying, but you're not planting seeds here. Okay, you are sowing seeds, not one at a time. You're tossing out big handfuls. So the seed falls here and it falls there. Planting is kind of like a one-on-one -on -one thing, like you might plant like, I don't know, a shrub or something. But sowing, you're giving every part of the earth a chance to have seed. And when you sow, you have to expect that not all seeds will grow. But the point is that many seeds fall on the wayside, many on thorny ground, and many on stony ground. But some's going to fall on the good ground. God gives many opportunities, not just one. If it was, he'd just throw one seed at you and that would be it. In fact, the sower offers each kind of ground many, many opportunities. But let me ask you, how many seeds does it take to grow one apple tree? or let's say one orange tree, or maybe one pear tree. Go ahead, I'll wait. <laughs> How many seeds does it take to grow a tree? That's right, it only takes one seed. And if that one seed is fruitful, how many seeds can be made from that one tree? So whenever you look at a field of any kind of plant, it probably started with one seed. It only takes one seed to be fruitful to begin the process. This is why men and women are one and not two separate things. It only takes one pair to start making humans, right? It only takes one seed, just one. God can do a lot with a little, and you have to see it the same way. You don't need a lot of people in your life, just the ones that produce fruit. You don't need a lot of resources. You just need to be fruitful with what you have. You don't need a lot of change to change the world. You don't need a lot to change the world. You have to be smart, you have to have a degree, you have to be, no. Don't be afraid of where God sends you anywhere because you are the seed. It doesn't matter who rejects you, only those who accept you matter. The good ground will produce 
think of Jesus, he was rejected by his own, but because he was a seed, whoever accepted him produced more and more fruit. And I will prove to you that Jesus Christ was a seed. You guys know I like to prove it in the word. It says in John chapter 12, verse 23 and 25, you know this one. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come, the son of man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. There he is talking about himself. He's talking about the time of the son of the man to be glorified. What was that? Crucifixion, my friend. And he's talking now about seeds. That's what we have to understand that not only is he the word of God, which is described as the seed, and also we see it as God in John 1 and 1, but he is a branch and the one who rose from the dead like every seed rises again. A seed falls and it is buried, but it rises again as a tree. It rises again as a plant. It rises again as a bush. Seeds are living examples of Jesus Christ and living examples of us. And now we have become like him. It is reminiscent of that old saying that says, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. You see, you can't be overwhelmed with your enemies or your haters or the enemy of your soul or even the vicissitudes and troubles of life that may try to bury you. But it is only so that you will rise again with fruit and more fruit and seeds. Remember, we learn the kingdom of God is expanding, so more fruit comes from more fruit trees. This is why the Lord says, happy is the man who is persecuted for Christ, because great is his reward in heaven in, cha in uh, Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12. It says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so pro persecuted they, the prophets which were before you. My friend, look for the fruit and keep producing fruit. Let nothing block you. Let go of anger, unforgiveness, sadness, depression, and resentment. God's work for you is blessed by the fruit you produce. So be fruitful and multiply. God bless you. Bye.